So the passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 16. That's on um, page 977 in the Rack Bible, sir. So turn with, with me, if you will, to that passage. Let's begin. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thank you, Craig. It's a pretty good passage, huh? Been looking forward to this one. If you were here last week, I hope you were encouraged. It was a little different. You were the sermon, and you did well. You almost went over time, but we're used to that. So thank you for filling in and sharing the ways that you see yourself as a missionary. That's what the early church did. They each saw and felt the call of the mission to proclaim the gospel wherever they found themselves. And for us, he has already planted us in neighborhoods, in workplaces for many, in schools for some, in community organizations and places. Those are our fields that we've been planted in. And just seeing the way God sees is seeing people in need people hurting, people struggling, and simply trying to be salt and light. And one of the simplest ways to do that is to break bread together, to share, to open homes or to share a table, to share a meal. It broke down walls. It was a primary ministry of Jesus. It was a primary ministry of the church. And therefore, it should be a primary ministry of all Jesus' followers. And so thank you for leaning into that. I hope you are encouraged that that is taking place. We're praying for a harvest that God would be, he is the God of the harvest. He's the God of the results. We are simply the, the seed sowers, the, the fertilizers, the waterers at times, but he's the one that grows and transforms. And it's good to look back to the early church. It's what we've been doing through this series, that we would receive it as words even to us, as if Paul was writing to us because he was writing toward the end of his life to this church that he loved, hoping that they would carry on. He, he knew there was a good likelihood that he would never be released from prison in Rome, and that came to pass. He would be martyred under the hands of Nero. And so his final letters are important for the church to look to, even though it was written to a locale in Ephesus, those letters would be distributed, and he knew it, beyond to the greater church. 
And so he wrote to them encouragement that was supposed to last and go forward for the church. And though we're 2,000 years removed, these words have come forward to us. So it's good to look back in order that we might move forward. And that's what I'm going to do in these two sermons today and, Lord willing, next Sunday. The first Jesus followers multiplied rapidly. And that is part of our our vision, that we would be people who multiply. Jesus said that God is God of the harvest, and he can take a seed, a single seed, and multiply it 30, 60, or 100-fold based on the season and the soil that it's planted in, the, the water and the sun. God is in control of all of those things, and he can multiply and bring a harvest. And so that's our prayer, that we would see a 100-fold harvest in the next 100 years, beginning with about 100 of us. And the reason we say a hundred is not to say, oh, there's plenty of time for that to be done later. It's recognizing longevity. The history of the hundred years we've had on this hill, praying for a hundred more, and recognizing if we are about God's work sowing seeds today, that harvest will never be fulfilled. But that's our prayer. Well, the early church grew exponentially even more than that from hundreds in around AD 33 after Jesus rose from the dead. Many had scattered. Perhaps those who weren't true disciples began to doubt and disperse. Those who were came together, and there were 120 who gathered at that first Pentecost after Jesus rose again and ascended to heaven. So from 120, when the Holy Spirit came on them in power and sent them out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, they multiplied by, by about 100, A.D. 100, they had multiplied to about 25,000. Difficult to estimate, estimate that long ago and also because the church was under great persecution. It was illegal to be a, a believer, and so those numbers were uncertain. But what we do know is that that church, the, the church grew and multiplied exponentially again from maybe 25,000 in A.D. 100 to just past 300 A.D., maybe 313 A.D., estimates were the church was now 25 million. It had grown exponentially, a hundredfold, essentially, in just two centuries, from a single small movement able to gather in one place to the most significant religious force in the Roman Empire, And this church was persecuted. It had to be underground. You might put that in in quotes. They didn't actually meet in caves. For the most part, perhaps they did. But underground meant simply they couldn't gather publicly and openly without fear of persecution or even death. In the Roman Empire, it was illegal to proclaim any other god but Caesar himself. The emperor And this is clearly what believers, followers of Jesus proclaim. Jesus is Lord. He is King. So it was illegal. They were under persecution. At best, best they were tolerated in places, perhaps cities that were more progressive. At worst, they were clearly oppressed and persecuted. There were no church buildings as we know them or think of them. Certainly nothing like a cathedral. Nothing even even to mimic the size of this, this gathering building. They would meet primarily in homes or in open fields or or open courts within the city. They did not yet have the Bible as we know it. They had either fragments at best in places or good copies, but they were uh, disordered and were coming together into the Bible that we now know today. They had no higher institutions of education 
They had no professional certifications. They had no ordaining counsel. And furthermore, they had no attractional events with rock bands and no dynamic preachers in skinny jeans and $1,000 sneakers. No cutting-edge kids programming with bouncy houses and petting zoos. And furthermore, the church, it was difficult to join the church for fear of those who might come in to infiltrate it and destroy it from, from the outside. It, it, had to, it had to be difficult to come in, as if it wasn't enough that to come into a church gathering required your, your willingness to be persecuted, to go to prison and potentially even die for proclaiming Jesus as Lord, as if that wasn't enough of a barrier There was also a public baptism, public in the sense of before other believers, and confession of faith before you were ever allowed in. And then furthermore, there was actually initiation time set by most churches to watch your life, to see how you would live in order to prove the reality that you are actually trusting and following Jesus. And all of this makes me think maybe we should change some things around here. The church grew exponentially with all of this in place, with none of the resources or things or programs that we might reach to to try to have church growth happen today, with none of the freedoms that we enjoy today in the West, and yet the church grew exponentially, and the church in the West is dying exponentially. So the right question is, how is this possible? How did this happen? And by the way, a more, a more recent example of multiplication is the Chinese Christian movement, the Christian church that happened maybe in the, in the 70s and 80s, or probably 50s through the 70s under Mao Zedong, when he made it also illegal for Christians to gather. Many of the same things were experienced by that church in China as the early church experienced in the Roman Empire. And so when, the, when that bamboo curtain was finally lifted in the late 70s and early 80s, and the West, Western missionaries came back into China, they were expecting a decimated church to find just maybe some remnants in places. And instead, what they found was the church was thriving and had multiplied exponentially. Perhaps it was up to 60 million at that time. And today it has doubled again under some of that same persecution. Now, to be sure, both, both of those multiplication movements of the, of the church were inspired by the Holy Spirit, They clearly trusted in and relied on his presence and his power. He made it all possible. He will never leave his church. So it's right for the church then in the West to say, if we're not seeing this same kind of transformation and growth rapidly, it's not that the Holy Spirit has left the church, it's that we perhaps have left him. Pastor Alan Hirsch, a pretty well-renowned missiologist today, He argues in his book, The Forgotten Ways, and I would recommend that book. I'll reference it a few times today. He he, he argues that while the early church and then the Chinese Christian Revolution were unique, clearly, unique works of, of the Spirit, they are not to be the exception as much as they are to be the norm, the rule. It's what the church was called to be. Ordinary, not extraordinary. Alan points us back to our history, truly his story, to look at the early church, first at who they were and then at what they did. That's what we've been doing as we've been going through Ephesians. Who were they? 
because of who God was and what he had done. Therefore, how are they to live? What are they to do? What are they to look like? And Alan calls us back, to look back. And he says this in, uh, toward the beginning. I think it's in his introduction in Forgotten Ways. It isn't that reaching into our past is not a part of our solution. It is. But the issue is simply that we generally don't go back far enough or rather we don't delve deep enough for the answers that we're seeking. We need refounding even more than we need reformation. And we could really do with a lot of reformation as well. I like that term, refounding. As the church was founded upon the apostles and the prophets and then empowered by the Holy Spirit and the way that they multiplied, we should take great heed to. We need refounding as much as we need reformation. Hirsch calls us to look back further beyond Christendom, beyond the last number of centuries and certainly decades, all the way back to its inception. It's what the, it's what the Chinese Christian church naturally did as they faced the very similar circumstances that the early church faced. As Hirsch points us to our past, when he uses, he uses Paul's letter to the Ephesians as kind of the, the hallmark text, and even more specifically to chapter 4. He points the church today squarely to chapter 4, and it's really the basis for his book, The Forgotten Ways. What have we forgotten and misplaced that is causing us today to languish as the church in the West when initially it thrived? And so I was going back through his book, just being reminded again of some of his insights and was encouraged as he points us squarely to chapter 4 and reminds us this is ultimately what it's all about, that we would all grow up into Christ, as we heard read, into him who is the head, that we would come to know his fullness, that the church would mature that it would thrive, that it would grow. And you know I love this growing language, right? The picture of greenhouse, that we are all meant to grow at every stage of our life. We're never done growing, deep roots, new shoots, although that's usually referring to new faith and new life in Christ. In the springtime, we, a, a plant, a, a flower, a, a seedling puts out new growth too, new shoots. So we always need new growth that we would bear diverse fruit that the greenhouse would be full of flowers and fruits to the blessing of all. And yet we also know that the multiplication happens best in, in the fields, not in the greenhouse. In the greenhouse, we're often contained. It's a safe environment for good growing, especially through hard seasons or winter times. It's protected. But that God would take us and plant us with those deep roots into new fields that may be more harsh. But if we're ever going to multiply and see a harvest, that must be so. So that's the picture. That's the image that I love. It's borrowing this growth image. Paul uses the body image. Maybe he was self-conscious. He often used the body image. And so this kind of growing, he's talking about the body growing, becoming stronger, maturing. And it doesn't matter whether your physical body is declining. You are meant to spiritually grow and thrive at every stage. And that's what Paul is arguing here, that the body, the whole body, as each part works together in a single body to make it function, so does the body of Christ. We're each uniquely gifted and, and wired to, to reflect the fullness of Him. That's how, we, that's how we experience the fullness of Him, is together, is one to another, that we would grow up in Him. So I've titled these sermons, if you've noticed, Bodybuilding. Bodybuilding, this is part one. Next week, part two, Lord willing. 
that we would grow up into Christ. And we'll apply this both individually and corporately. Clearly, Paul is writing to that church, the gathering, that they would be the body, a strong body together. We must apply that corporately. That's how he started this passage. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And you can see it right there, don't you? The the corporate challenge. But yet there's an individual response. We are all called to this, to walk in this way, to bear with one another, to maintain unity. And we're reminded again, as I preached on this a couple weeks ago, we don't create unity, the Holy Spirit does. So we invite Him to come and one, our one Lord to rule. That's what unifies us. Now we might be called to work toward it actively, to maintain it. How? By bearing with one another, by being patient, by proclaiming who we are because of who God is. We see the individual response here as the body of the the body to grow strong. This is where we find our identity, our purpose, our satisfaction, our joy. This is what it's all about. Paul said to Timothy, if we want to apply this kind of individual call to bodily strength, he says 1 Timothy 4:7. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the one to come. We should be, in the literal sense, trying to strengthen these bodies that we've been given as long as we can to give us as much possible time and energy to do the work that God has called. And yet we know we're not ultimately the ones in control of these bodies. As Paul says elsewhere, these earthly tents, these jars of clay, they're, they're not much. They're all we've got for a short amount of time, so we better focus on the more important things. The training in godliness, the spiritual growth, that kind of body building. You know, two weeks ago when I preached on this passage, I think it's worth repeating now as we are looking back to what that church, who the church was and what they did in order that we might apply it presently and look forward in a coming season, and I'll, I hope to shift us to look forward next week. This seems appropriate. As we ask the question, like Alan Hirsch did, and really that, that, that was the question at the heart of the book that he wrote, was simply, simply the question of how did that happen? How did the early church multiply exponentially under those circumstances? How did the Chinese Christian revolution multiply exponentially under similar circumstances, and yet we in the West are dying? That question birthed in him this research and this study and this long journey to ultimately write this book, and he's written many others also. So we ask that question, how did they do it? Clearly the Holy Spirit was alive and at work and blessing these movements. And there's many things we can't mimic or apply. We must seek to apply the heart, the character, and really the calling of Ephesians chapter 4. And I wonder, I wonder if it's this simple Simple, not easy. You'll hear me use that phrase a lot. Simple in it's graspable to a child. My, my children understand the concept of love and selflessness. They simply do not do it very often. 
And I'm not sure we get all that much better as we grow. And Paul may not even call us grown-ups. Because grown up in the Lord is selflessness, humility, service, others focused. I won't embarrass Ella, not that she's ever going to listen to this online because she's not in the room, but with such a kind heart, she can be incredibly self-centered and focused. We just ran into it again yesterday. And you can be angry and frustrated, and then you can take a step back and say, oh, who's training her most consistently, and the mirror goes back to yourself, as you know, parents, that we would grow up into Christ. But I wonder if it's this simple, that the early church actually did Ephesians 4. And we don't take this out of context. The first three chapters, Paul's been preaching the gospel, reminding them who they are because of what God has done. Namely, his incredible grace and mercy, and he's given them everything. And from that understanding, even though we're always needing to continue to understand that and be reminded of it, then we act, then we live, then we are transformed. But is it possible that it's this simple that the early church, the Chinese Christian revolution, and that really every movement of the church that has ever multiplied rapidly simply did Ephesians 4. They took it as God's word to them and they applied it. So again, simple, not easy, because it's going to take years to grow up in this call. What What are some of the snapshots of Ephesians chapter 4. We heard a few of them read. I'll I'll reference a few others. Let's use this greenhouse language. If these are the fertilizer for the growth and the thriving of the church, things like verse 11, a plurality of leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, shepherds, teachers, working together in accordance with their gifting. That's that's one, fertilizer. Uh, Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. We could preach a whole message probably on each one of these. Many of us speak truth and are without love and are harsh. Some of us just love and ignore the truth and allow, allow people to drift away from God's will and word or ourselves. That's verse 15. Verse 23, being renewed in the spirit of our minds. Verse 27, not sinning in anger. Verse 28, working hard and honestly and sharing generously with one another. Verse 29, not criticizing one another with our words, but building one another up, encouraging them. Verse 30, being kind and forgiving one another. That's that's just a snapshot. This has been such a, a key text for the church for centuries, but Alan Hirsch argues that we have forgotten our way. That truly, if we want to see a multiplication of God's kingdom, that the church would simply obey and do Out of his grace, what Paul argues and urges us to do in Ephesians chapter 4. If these are the very fertilizers for this kind of thriving growth, then perhaps verses 1 through 4 are the very soil. The soil itself. Unity and oneness in one Lord, one Father, and one Spirit. That's what Alan Hirsch argues. That the unity of the church In the one God is the only soil in which true diversity in ministry can flourish. And Paul makes this point incessantly here in Ephesians chapter 4. Perhaps the early church multiplied exponentially simply because they did Ephesians 4. 
Again, it's not hard to understand these things. It's not easy to apply them. It might take years. To be sure, also, this is another sermon. The bones of it. I won't preach it here for you. This early church, everyone considered them. There's three things. Many sermon. Every one of them considered themselves a missionary. That was their calling. There was no other option. There weren't professional missionaries. Some others who went out and did every person was a missionary. They believed it. Number two, they were willing to send their best, to give their best, to give generously and send their best. Acts 13 is that primary example. When Paul and Barnabas, some of the best leaders in the church, were sent out from Antioch because there were more people who did not yet know. They're willing to send their best. And three, they believed the time was short. That it was, there was an urgency to proclaiming the gospel. Jesus was returning soon. They probably already wondered why he was taking so long. And that probably motivated them that, okay, he's waiting that more people would come into his kingdom. So let's go, because he's coming back and that time for mission will end. They lived with that urgency. That's a whole sermon. I could preach that. It should be applied to us. I'm not preaching it this morning. Maybe I am, but not directly. And I also could preach a sermon on every one of those fertilizers I just mentioned. I'm not sure I'm going to do that. They could be great standalone, like topical messages. How to, how to be angry and not sin. How to be more kind and compassionate one to another, on and on. And yet, I need, to, I need us to see the, the big picture of what we are called to. And not get stuck on that one thing that we need to work on even more. I'm going to work hard on being kind. No, that's, you're now stuck in, stuck in a microscopic perspective. We need to step back and be rem- reminded of who we are in Christ, what He has done. Get our eyes focused on Him. Ask Him for the power to help us live out His mission. I do want to join Alan Hirsch in the remainder of the time this morning and in agreement and say that verse 11 Of all of Ephesians 4, verse 11 may be what is most forgotten by the church in the West. He spends chapters on this in his book. And so I think it's worth, it's at least been misunderstood, if not completely neglected and rejected. And I'd like to set us straight, hopefully. If if we're talking about the bodybuilding analogy, this is core work. This is foundational it's the foundation that the church is ultimately built upon. We didn't recently lose or forget verse 11. It's been misplaced for centuries. And this ecclesia, ecclesiological dementia really began in 313 AD with the Edict of Milan. You like history? So Constantine instituted the church for the first time Right? And there's speculation whether he was actually a true believer or not or was using it for his own gain. But whatever, whatever, whatever the case, it's likely that that edict of Milan, when Christianity became the national faith religion of the Roman Empire, that that's actually one of the worst things that has ever happened to the church. It was actually enemy-inspired. Because as soon as it became institutionalized, as soon as you were born a Christian and baptized into the church as an infant, there's really no need at that point for evangelism. There's no need for a discernible life of faith and devotion. It just simply was. And now we have cathedrals that have been built. We have professional clergy that are the only learned ones that would pass down the word to the the lesser ones. And on and on, it rolled itself out. 
And if you're interested in that, Hirsch does an awesome job of kind of articulating and walking through the, the history of what took place. And for 1,200 years, the institutionalization of the church continued to affect, if not infect, the very organic nature of what the church was meant to be as a movement and as a people, and it really still is today. Well, 1,200 years later, approximately, when Martin Luther came to reform the church or proclaim reformation, he too, like Hirsch argues, was calling us all the way back, all the way back to our roots, to our history, beyond the institutionalization, to break down those walls, right? Really, the, primarily, the walls between the, the church leaders, the pope at the highest position, and the priests and the bishops, those walls that existed, which were never meant to be, that we're actually all one in Christ, uniquely gifted, and the church needs to become more of a movement. So Luther did an awesome job, and yet those rigid forms of Christendom have remained, and when we struggle, even in the West today, to break out of those molds, we're reaching back into Christendom for the very answers for the way we think church should be done. We're so influenced by it. And Hirsch calls us all the way back, as Luther did, to the ways that have been forgotten, if the enemy was at work in this and he has stolen this, well, we, we went to bed with the door open and the lights on. And so I would agree and call us back as I have been throughout this, well, really all of my preaching ministry is to call us back to the works of Jesus and his church while recognizing we must contextualize them in our current modern context. But these forgotten ways, and if verse 11 is most forgotten because it's maybe most misunderstood or challenged or argued, it's worth looking at. Verse 11, Paul is arguing a plurality of gifting, as he does really throughout his writings, that we are all one, uniquely gifted. And that, that gifting is to work for the benefit of the church. If you go to, a, uh, I don't have these references, I'm not going to read them. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12 would be the other two contexts of spiritual gifting, where Paul explains how not everyone has the same gifts, and that's a good thing for the church. Here in Ephesians 4, verse 11, he's focusing really on the leadership. But he's also saying that a plurality of gifting is at work. The Holy Spirit gives these gifts. Ultimately, Jesus himself here is the one giving the gifts through the Spirit differently, different, not divided, unique, but unified. And these roles are to work for the growing up of the church, to work together and he's really focusing in on leadership here. Now, some argue that Paul is only listing four roles, not five. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers might be clumped together because there's no definite article bef before that. If you were to read it in the Greek, it would say Jesus has given some to be the apostles, some to be the prophets, some to be the evangelists, and some to be the pastors and teachers. We know often we link pastor-teacher kind of gifts together. or probably splitting hairs that Paul wouldn't split. The point is, God, Jesus, through his personhood, according to his grace, gifts uniquely and differently, lest one person thinks they've got it all. No, no, we need one another. That's the body. Every part must be working together as God has assigned us to be for the flourishing and thriving of the body. We're gifted according to the measure of his grace to different levels. We know that. We look around and see different levels of that gifting and different capacities at different seasons in life. That's how the body functions and works together. Paul is incessant in arguing this point. Sadly, in our Western culture, we are infatuated with the CEO leader, aren't we? The top dog, the hierarchy, top down, that domineering, if not commanding, 
presence of a leader. A buck stops with him, Harry Truman. We, we kind of gravitate toward that, and so we've applied it into the church as well. The only problem is it's not biblical. And while I, as a leader, may be operating according to my gifts in this season, and this calling, I am one with the other elders and leaders of this body. I'll preach more on that kind of structure and where, we, where we've come from and where we are going uh, next week. We are striving for this, that we'd be faithful to God's Word. There is really no senior pastor, and I know we're, if we are splitting hairs, then I will split that one. That Jesus is the chief shepherd, first pastor. All other leaders in the church, every one of us is at best an under-shepherd, serving according to the gifts He has given for His glory Furthermore, the church has, for a long time, too long, heralded these gifts of pastor-teacher above the other three, apostles, prophets, evangelists. Should we call them apes? Hirsch calls the whole, the whole five, he calls it a five-fold gifting. He does believe pastors and teachers have a, a different gifting. But he also says it's not a one-to-one relationship. There's not one person who has a, a pastor gift and none of the others. They're usually a stronger gift and then others, and even in times and seasons, we see this. The Holy Spirit empowers someone without a gift to work in, in that time, in that place, in that season until others are raised up, until the body is strengthened. But we certainly have ignored the apes, especially the APs, the apostles and the prophets. They've been misunderstood. That role has been abused throughout history, I think, and perhaps that's why we are wary of it and Hirsch calls us back to be reminded of the multiple gifting that has not changed. Paul was writing to the church going forward. There was no indication that any of the gifts, that any of these roles were to cease for the church. And so we rightly would say we receive that. So where are these roles and these giftings if Jesus gave them actively at work? Regardless of what we call them. But could we also regain biblical language and terminology instead of run from it in fear or confusion? And so would we be urged to move back to our foundation? We seem to love the pastor and the teacher, right? We love to be cared for and taught the word. But at times, we need to be called to account, exhorted, rebuked, urged to the mission of proclaiming Jesus. We need loving leaders to challenge us to grow personally, sacrificially, in holiness, in obedience, to take faith-filled risks, to be senders or if not goers to new places, to plant churches. All of those things are the ministries and the outflowing of the gifting of the apostle, the prophet, and the evangelist. And so we pray that we would see this as our marching orders, if not our blueprint for body building. We do believe that every one of these gifts are, and roles, gifts, are as vital for the health of the church today as they were in the early church. When Christian came in and instituted the teacher as the primary position, ultimately, the authority came to the teacher, the one who knew the word of God, and it was proclaimed even in Latin, right? So kind of keep that separation. That, that, has, that has infected the church, really, for the last 1,700 years. Not to diminish the role of the teacher and the pastor, the shepherd, the guide, the protector, the disciple, maybe a lead disciple maker. Absolutely vital for the church. Cannot diminish them, but must raise the other gifts 
and see them empowered and released for the church. To be fair, many gifted, intelligent scholars and theologians claim that the apostolic and prophetic gifts have ceased in that early church era, really with probably the first disciples, those first apostles who knew Jesus. And since then, they were only necessary to be at work at that inception, and they are no longer needed. But there's no indication of this in Scripture, that these roles would cease. While recognizing that those 12, those first apostles were unique, and the birth of the church was a unique time, and the signs and the wonders that authenticated their message was special, we must not demand that those things happen again or else the Spirit can't be at work in, among us. We must not deny that those works of the Spirit can and if not should still be evidenced and manifest in the church today. Those that believe, wise, gifted, intelligent, smart, people that I would agree with 90-some percent of theology on but disagree on that point, they're maybe termed cessationists. They believe certain gifts have ceased we are not cessationists. The Alliance family as a movement believes in the ongoing presence, power, and gifting of the Holy Spirit for the church, for the advancement of the kingdom, to the ends of the age, forever and ever, in Jesus until he returns. Though, as I love our, our president of this movement, of the Alliance, John Stumbo, would say we need to stop telling the Holy Spirit what he must do, and we better stop telling him what he can't do. There's a right posture and tension and relationship with this. And ultimately, it comes down to humility and receiving only what the Lord wants while seeking Him and His work fully. I think the church today probably gets hung up first on this role, apostle, and it's really an abuse of this role uh, today and probably throughout, throughout the centuries that these most dynamic leaders, movers, pioneers for the faith are often the, the greatest ones to be critiqued. And there's many who would love to claim that title. And so it's been abused, but it's also probably the role that is most needed if the church is going to advance and thrive and grow today, that the apostolic role would be released. And maybe we can just simply say, not capital A, Apostle. There's no All of these aren't meant to be a title. They're supposed to be a gifting employed by simple under-shepherds, under-servants. The, the word apostle, though we might reference the 12 apostles, we might say those were the, those were the capital A apostles. Everyone else who operates as an, in an apostolic way, lowercase a, it simply means a sent one. One who is sent out with a mission and a message. Just as we might say deacons, oh, you're a deacon in the church, capital D, but the, that word in Greek simply means servant. We're all servants. In some ways, we're all meant to be apostles in that, in, in that way, to be sent ones because he has sent us. Though we know those that are simply gifted in accordance with that. Paul had just argued in chapter 2, verse 20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So he's clearly calling out these roles that kind of were the initiators. And then in chapter 4, he's now saying, and Jesus is giving you these gifts to build upon, to grow up the church. They are to continue and to be at work. In some ways, just like the spiritual gifts, we're all called to be a little more apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, a little better teachers, a little better pastors or shepherds. And I can run through those scriptures. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Desire that gift. 
Some will be truly gifted in it, others not so much, but desire it. We're called to it. We know we're called to be evangelists, proclaimers of the good news. Everyone, every follower of Jesus, with some of Jesus' final words, he said in John 20, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. He's sending us out with that message and on that mission. And we know Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We know we're called to, be, to have the pastoral shepherding heart. Everyone, mercy, compassion, care. To be disciple makers. When Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, he was speaking through to those first disciples and said, teach everyone to obey these commands. We're all called to that pastoral type ministry. We're all called to teach. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So I guess we should all strive to be a little more apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, shepherding and teaching. And yet we know others who just seem to ooze these gifts like, okay, you got it. Like, just, we got to release you to do that, to do the work in accordance with your gifting. Just as the scripture, just as Paul primarily in the scripture distinguishes spiritual gifts and calls them out, some of them we know we're all called to, like wisdom, compassion, mercy, generosity. We know we're all called to those, but there's some that are gifted in that. And I, I love this. And sometimes you wonder, what? What is my gifting? How am, I, how am I wired and truly gifted? If he's given each one a gift, I don't even know what it is. One of the best ways to determine it is to be, well, you've got to be in the body and see people at work. You've got to be serving one another. We're all called to that. But as you serve and you serve in different ways, there's going to be something or ways of ministry and service that are just more natural to you. And you're going to notice that. It might still be hard. I'm not saying it's not hard. Being selfless and serving to others is hard. But when you look at others, it's like, oh, you know what? That's actually not so bad. It seems a little more natural to me. Please share with one another. When you see someone doing something that just seems natural and you're like, that, I, that is so hard for me. It's a discipline. I hate it. I don't want to do it. I know I'm supposed to. And they just do it with a smile on their face. Go tell them. That's how we learn our gifts. I don't, maybe you're faking it, but this just seems natural to you. And whether you know the name of it in Scripture or not, those lists were never meant to be exhaustive. Recognize it's a way they've been created or wired, as Catherine would say. It's their imago day. It's the way they've been created in the image of God. We've got to share that one to another to encourage one another. Well, these gifts are the same, the same way. We're all, we're all gifted in these kinds of ways at varying degrees. It says right there, according to the measure of grace, according to Christ's will, But those that are gifted supremely in one of these areas, man, they must be released, not diminished, not rejected, not ignored. And so how do we do that? First, we need to recognize them. Do you know modern-day apostles? I think you do. Both You see them in our secular world. Do we see them in the church? You know those, regardless of what you call them, it's the gift. The gifting of the entrepreneur 
the charismatic leader, the natural risk taker, the innovator, the pioneer. When they speak, they can articulate something of passion and vision. It makes you want to go all in, to follow them, to imitate them. That's the gifting of the apostolic. When those are believers and they become missionaries, the church moves and mobilizes unless we put walls in their way. The other gifts must be at work together to build up the church. That, where we go wrong is when any of these gifts are elevated and isolated. And that tends to be, I mean, with someone who's naturally driven and is a goer and a speaker and a proclaimer, he can isolate himself and others might hesitate to come around him and so it can be abused. And today I would be very wary of like the, the, the new apostolic reformation and those that would claim kind of a capital A apostle as if there were still 12 today, it's the very thing the early church did with the papacy, I'd be very wary of that. I'd be very wary of anyone who claims one of these titles. Uh, if a prophet walks up to you and says, I'm a prophet of God, I'm here to speak into your life, I would just first be wary and maybe just leave. We see these gifts at work in our world and we pray that they would be more at work if our movement of the greater church is to flourish and thrive again. By the way, throughout church history, if we, cannot, we cannot ignore, reject, or fear any of these giftings. And I'm really highlighting probably the, the, the apostle and the prophet. Those seem to be the most ignored, feared, or misunderstood. If we do, we're actually rejecting the very DNA of what the church and the movement is supposed to be. And it's nothing new. Throughout church history, there have been false apostles as there have been false prophets, false teachers, phony pastors, and charlatans. You can't read through the New Testament without seeing this as a primary issue that they kept up coming up against. False teachers, false prophets, people raising themselves up, seeking their own ego, not Jesus. It's the constant conflict. Jesus himself rebuked the false teachers, the false prophets, and had some pretty harsh words to say. So it's nothing new. We don't ignore or reject simply because of the abuses we seek to rightly correct them. The answer to a false version is the true. The right response to abuse is the, ro- is the right use of that role. We would be like John the Baptist. I must become less, he must become more. That's the posture of every one of these gifts. And by the way, Jesus said there was no one greater than John. And if Jesus was the greatest apostle, the greatest prophet, the greatest evangelist, the greatest pastor, the greatest teacher, and he distributes those gifts from his personhood, and we see the way he lived, wrapping a towel around his waist and washing feet, the next day dying on the cross to serve those who were even misunderstood and and rejected and betrayed him. Do you know modern day prophets? I think you do. Not Again, not the ones that walk up and proclaim it, but prophets today are men and women who have a deep passion and conviction for holiness, for obedience, to know God's word and to obey his will. When they speak, they can often kind of refine an issue or a conflict down to the root and bring the word of God usually into that. They may be Future tellers, but probably far less likely than they are just forth tellers of the truth. Most of the time, they're simply proclaiming a truth of God that is misunderstood, ignored, or unknown. It may simply be the very quoting of Scripture into a group or a situation or a church that gets people's attention and says, oh yeah. 
So nothing even of their own is something that's already been proclaimed. God may speak to them and give them some form of word of knowledge. Scripture speaks to that. But primarily, I would say it's simply being a forth teller of God's truth and word and will. And the prophets that I know do so humbly, even when they are confident, even if they could step out and say, in this, thus says the Lord. They're very hesitant to ever do that. They would usually present it as, is it possible that? I, th- I think God might be asking me to say this to you. They just do it with an open hand and gentleness that it could be maybe received and processed and that they would be humble to be tested. We're called to test uh, the, the, the prophetic gift as well. We all know evangelists who are gifted, making hard truths simple. And I'm really not talking about the Billy Grahams and Luis Palau's on that public stage. I'm talking probably about the person sitting next to you or that friend of yours who can sneeze on the guy in front of him at Starbucks and lead him to Jesus before they get the cappuccino. It's like they just, they build this bridge there. They have some charisma or they have some quirkiness to them and they can just find the path to the gospel and to hope. You know people like this, don't you? David Bong, I'm not sure if you ever listened to these sermons, but David Bong comes to mind. He is a gifted evangelist. I don't think I have to build the case for pastors and teachers. Do you know any good gifted pastors and teachers beyond this place, out there in the podcast world? We do not diminish their roles, but we seek to elevate the roles that have been rejected. I think apostle and prophet because it's confusing, because they operate in accordance with the Spirit. Um, The evangelist, simply because of Christendom. If you're born into the church and baptized and everyone's in, why would you need to herald an evangelist? And we've lost that call, that missionary evangelist call. Now, the good news is that all of these gifts have been given This is the aorist indicative. It has been done at some point in the past. Verse 7, grace was given to each one. It's done. Verse 11, and Jesus gave. Paul says it was when he ascended to heaven. That's when the gifts were given. He's gone, the gifts come. He says it in a weird way. When he ascended to heaven and led captives in his train, he's quoting Psalm 68. At least paraphrasing Psalm 68, a Psalm of David applying to Jesus. Not the first time, by the way. I think he's also doing a play on words. He led captives in his train. Oh, but they were the captives. They were Jesus' captives. They're the people he rescued from the enslavement of the enemy. They are now his captives. They are prisoners of the Lord then. Sound familiar? While he is seated in heaven, his train, his veil fills the earth, just as the picture in Isaiah 6. And we are a part of that. We are his body and his mission extending to the world. And he has given us all the gifts we need to fulfill it. it, it, The church today is latent with these gifts. It does not matter what we call them. It does not matter how much they are ignored or rejected. They will be at work by any people who will submit themselves to the Holy Spirit, to the Lordship of Jesus, and say, work through us for your glory. Will we be ready? Missy, I've got to land this plane. I just looked at the clock. Missiologist Howard Snyder is quoted in by, by Hirsch in Forgotten Ways. I don't know if I can get here, but man, he's, he's, a, he's a respected leader in the church. And he says this. He says, the central task of leadership in existing churches, okay, that's, that's us, is to rebuild a fully empowered ministering community based on Ephesians 4.11. So you start speaking in superlatives, you're going to get criticized. 
I don't know if I can get there, but man, I mean, because the central task of leadership, so Craig, Phil, let's, let's think about that and pray on this this week, for existing churches is to fully empower a ministry community based on Ephesians 4.11 and these plurality of gifts in our midst. Alan Hirsch says something similar. If we are ever to be the church that Jesus clearly intended us to be, then we are going to have to do it according to his specific design as he taught us in Ephesians 4, 7 through 11. And the good news is we don't need to import it. We simply need to awaken it. And I wanted to leave us with that phrase because Paul will say in Ephesians 5, 14, awake, O sleeper, wake up. The very same thing that Alan is calling us to is nothing new. Uh, Open your eyes. Jesus said that to his disciples. Wake up. What, if, what has been forgotten? What, what, where's our amnesia? Wake up, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. May we be people who wake up to our roots, to our history, to the movement of the church, because more and more today, Christendom is dead, does not reach back into it. At least in our context, in our culture, we are post postmodern. And the church is starting to become more and more oppressed, abused, marginalized. The enemy is very creative in how he has d- done that. I think the church would thrive again if, this, if our faith was illegal and we could not gather in this place. I'm not praying for that. We'd love, let's use the freedoms we have and the openness to proclaim Jesus as Lord that we still have today. But may we wake up, church, to our roots that we would be people, do you want to be people who would grow and thrive? Do you want to have deep roots for any season and storm that could come, that you are unwavering and unshakable, stable and strong? Do you want to see diverse fruit in your life to bless and encourage one another, that you would grow up into every way into him who is the head, to experience the fullness of life that Jesus offers, a glimpse of it here, but also the hope of it forever. We've been given everything we need. We just must wake up to it. Next week, continue bodybuilding. I'll point us forward to the season ahead and some great things that God is doing in our midst. So I hope you won't miss that. Let's pray. Team, come up. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have built into your church. You have built and laid the foundation already. Now show us where we must tear down things that we built apart from you and come back to that foundation. I thank you that you've already gifted. As I look out on your people here, you've gifted us in every way that's needed and anything that's lacking, you will fill and you will give even more. Thank you for that. I pray that you would awaken each one of us both to your presence and to your power and to your gifting that we would know exactly what we've been wired for. We would know our identity in you. So move us, Lord, from this place, change, not the same, as we proclaim you, as we celebrate you, as we come to this table and again are reminded of the sacrifice that you paid for us to have life. Thank you that you are, Jesus, you are seated on the throne at the right hand of God our Father. You intercede for us, but you've sent the Holy Spirit to us. And you said it was better, that you would be there and the Spirit would be here. And so we believe it and proclaim it And ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move manifest in and through us as you will, both for our conviction and also for our encouragement. We worship you, Holy God, Father, Jesus, Son, and Holy Spirit today.
It's in your name we pray. Amen. Respond as you are led. Thank you for your grace upon me. This is like old, old time Ben right here. So let's just go. Let's roll and sing and praise. And if you have to leave early at 12, be blessed. We'll catch you tomorrow, hopefully.